Its empire is long gone, but Britain's capital may still be the world's most cosmopolitan city. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, fashion guru James Sherwood takes us into the most elegant places in London without going broke. His discriminating guide to London includes insider tips, like avoiding the tourist crowds at tea time on the back terrace at the Ritz. Nobody knows that you can actually sit on the terrace on a very nice day and order a Pims or a gin and tonic and happily sit there, and it won't cost you an awful lot of money, and you're probably one of the most exclusive gardens in London. We'll also hear how the cold-blooded ruthlessness of a 15th-century prince inspired the movies you've seen about vampires. Life Pedersen introduces us to the real Dracula, who's viewed as a hero in today's Romania. He's considered kind of like a a great combination of Robin Hood and Rambo. You know, he defended Romania in in an impossible situation. Plus, find kindness in your travels and get a taste of the Diwali festivities in India. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll feel like you've been invited to a marvelous party when you follow James Sherwood's witty guidebook to the most storied restaurants, hotels, and specialty shops in London. The English fashion critic and style guru joins us in a bit to tell us about his new Discriminating Guide to London. And we'll hear from listeners with stories of simple acts of kindness that made a memorable difference in their travels. As a writer based in Romania for Lonely Planet, Life Patterson has ventured into the rural outposts of Transylvania and Wallachia. That's where Prince Vlad Dracula ruled in the 15th century. And it's where Life was surprised to learn that the inspiration for Bram Stoker's infamous character is actually regarded as a national hero. He writes about him in Backpacking with Dracula, on the trail of Vlad the Impaler and the vampire he inspired. Life, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. So we have this historic character, Vlad Tepish, or or Vlad Dracula, nicknamed Vlad the Impaler, and then there's the romantic character, Dracula, from the Bram Stoker book. Who who is who? Who's real, and, and what's the story here? Well, Vlad Dracula was a 15th century prince in Wallachia, today's Romania, and he was prince of Wallachia during a very challenging time. The Ottomans were encroaching from the south, and the Hungarian Empire was coming in from the the north and the west, and uh, they were just kind of like a little tiny grape waiting to be squashed. And uh, Vlad, rather than allow himself to be squashed, he he went on the offensive. Uh, He managed to broker an agreement with the Hungarians, and then he went after the Ottomans and literally scared them away. By impaling people? and Yes. <laughs> Did he drink their blood? After Dracula died, there was a lot of writing about this guy. You know, he was, even for a violence, very different time, the 15th, he was notably sadistic. And so writers from Germany and Russia, you know, far off, and decades after he mm. died, they'd be writing these tales about him, and they embellished quite a bit. He is guilty of a lot of terrible things, but he was never known to be cannibalistic. Okay, so this was a time when, when there was brutal tactics. I mean, people would torture each other, and they would cut off their heads and put them on pikes and so on. How was Vlad exceptional? He he was just very creative, for lack of a better word, with killing people. And it was psychological warfare. You know, the Ottoman Empire had his little principality outnumbered three to one. So he took it to another level mm. and, and succeeded. I, he ultimately died, of course, and the Ottomans eventually made it all the way to the gates of Vienna a couple centuries later. Mm-hmm. But while he was alive, he, he was a legend. So you've almost, um, you, you've had a more eloquent justification of this cruel, bloodthirsty, Vlad the Impaler, ruler of this little country, by just saying, hey, he was squashed between Hungary and the Ottomans, and it was the way he could keep his tribe from becoming wiped out. You wrote in your book some very 
creative dirty tricks that he used. I mean, he actually dressed people up with leprosy and the plague and sent them to mingle with the enemy? Yeah, he did that, and it was extremely successful. And it is uh, believed to be the earliest, or one of the earliest known uses of germ warfare. Romania is wide open. It's part of the EU now. It's perhaps the poorest country in the EU, but it's wide open. And traveling there is very straightforward. You don't need a visa or anything like that. You'll find comfortable hotels. It's super affordable. What are the Dracula sites? I mean, a lot of uh, what we think about Dracula is, uh, you know, fanciful. But there's actually honest-to-goodness Dracula sites, right? Oh, yeah. A lot of them have survived. You know, they built things back then to last. And so, uh, for example, his boyhood home in Sigashora, where he was born and, and lived until he was a toddler, that is still standing. It's a restaurant. And uh, the princely court at Targoviste, where Vlad and his father and his grandfather, that's where their princely court was. And it was a formidable fortress and castle at the time. And Large portions of those ruins are still standing. And, of course, then there's Dracula's castle, the real Dracula's castle, up in the mountains right at the border where Wallachia connects with Transylvania. It was an important pass at the time, and it was strategic. He built a castle there, and ruins of that are still standing. And what's the name of that castle? It's called Poinar. The I at the end is silent. So P-O-E-N-A-R-I. That's Dracula's real castle. And the most popular among tourists of all these sites is Sigashora which is an amazing little Germanic town nestled in the, in the hills of Transylvania. Bran Castle has the most tourism of any Dracula site. What's with Bran Castle and its association with Vlad the Impaler? Well, as with a lot of things in the 15th century, the details are a little fuzzy. But uh, So there's several different versions of this story, but all of them basically agree that Vlad probably visited there, but didn't spend much time there. And he may have even been briefly imprisoned there. But uh, yes, apart from spending a few nights there, either as a guest or a prisoner, he mm. that, that was the beginning and end of his association with Castle. But wouldn't you say of, of all the money spent on Dracula tourism, maybe half of it is spent at, at Castle? Oh, certainly. It is, you know, on its own is a, an incredible attraction. And, and because of that, certain people kind of maybe overblow the association mm -hmm. with Dracula just to squeeze out a few extra tourist dollars, Dracula t-shirts and whatnot. Yeah, it's beautifully situated castle, but the interior really goes back to the 1920s when it was uh, a getaway for Romania's royal family. It's kind of a rustic country retreat, and it's quite an impressive visit just in that regard. But I would say just finding the Romania of Dracula's time would be a good challenge for the travelers without getting too hung up on the scant remains of places that were directly associated with Dracula. Talk about Romania in the 15th century. Where might we go today to get a sense of, of Romania from that age? Well, that is kind of the rub. The, the best Dracula, surviving Dracula sites are not in the most traveled areas. So you got to really be, you're going to have to rent a car. You know, Targoviste, Poinar Citadel, those places are not on the tourist trail. It's Braun Castle and then Sigashora where you're going to find all the tourists. And, and those are great, but those, uh, you know, again, Dracula moved away from Sigashora when he was three and he only temporarily stayed at Brown Castle. If you want to get into some real Dracula stuff, you have to get in a car and, and, and really just go for it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Life Pedersen. Life's book is Backpacking with Dracula on the trail of Vlad the Impaler and the vampire that he inspired. So explain the connection, Life, please, uh, between the historic Vlad Dracula and the Dracula that came out of Bram Stoker's uh, book. 
Well, there is some debate about that. For a long time, it was believed that Bram Stoker studied Vlad Tepes, Vlad Dracula, closely and modeled his vampire monster after this guy. I mean, if you compare the two, probably Vlad Dracula killed more guys in his lifetime than the vampire. But there's now uh, new evidence that suggests that Brahm may not have known so much about Dracula. I mean, obviously he saw the name and, and quite happily adapted it. But there's some argument that he just knew a passing amount about the prince and instead based his vampire on previous characteristics of vampires. You know, vampire storytelling at the time was very popular. So Bram Stoker was just kind of dredging through different legends and scary stories from that region in the Middle Ages and not necessarily based on one character. Yeah, it, there's theories that he... he built the character of Count Dracula from a num numerous people that he was hanging out with there in the late 19th century, including his boss. He worked at a theater for 20-something years, and the boss of the theater, who was also the lead actor, was this tall, gangly guy with a like a hooked nose and thin gaunt, and uh, it's believed that he may have been the main inspiration just for Dracula's appearance. And how do the Romanians see him today? He is still considered a national hero. I, there's a TV show called 100 Greatest Romanians, and he's right up there at the top. It, despite mm. all his atrocities, he's considered kind of like a, a, a great combination of Robin Hood and Rambo. You know, he defended Romania in, in an impossible situation. What about vampires, just in general? How, what is the historic basis of the, all the focus on vampires? The vampire superstition that in all of Eastern Europe, that goes way, way back. There was a time where people believed it was true and they believed it so much that even the doubters kind of came around like actual doctors sent from Vienna to investigate stuff going on in Serbia. They, they went home and reported that vampires were a real thing and they had to start kind of planning for the inevitable vampire horde. And then of course, storytellers picked that up right away and, and began not only just writing about it for, to make a buck, but kind of embellishing and building on it garlic necklaces and this kind of thing that would all come out of these embellishments of these legends? Yeah, that, and, and a lot of it was based on existing superstitions. What is now Romania and Bulgaria, Serbia, all that, they believed vampires were real and they were successful in convincing actual doctors at the time that, that it was a thing. So it's interesting that we're taking a historic character who, because of circumstances, had to be very vicious and bloody in order to survive between the Hungarians and the Ottomans in the 1400s, and then you've got these legends of vampires, and you have uh, other scare stories from just rattling around, and then you've got a Victorian novelist that weaves it all together, and it really struck a chord with the public, and today, uh, probably half the tourism going to Romania is looking for the Trail of Dracula. Yeah, it's a bit of a sore spot for the Romanians, because, you know, having the one's entire country associated with a fictional character written by a guy who never stepped foot in the country. They, they're, a little, they're a little salty about that. It's, it would be like the if everyone associated England with the Spice Girls. Ah, that's a very good analogy. Like the beginning and end of your impression in England, oh, that's where the Spice Girls, okay. And then, then you knew nothing else about it. That's, that's how Romania feels uh, with, the, with the Dracula the situation. All right. Well, then, if there's a reason to go to Romania other than following the little scant track of this uh, vampire Dracula, which is all fictitious, tell us uh, why we should go to Romania. Well, I would, obviously, I would recommend that you follow the trail of the real Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. He was, he was a character, i just put it lightly. But Romania, you know, Romania is 
arguably the biggest bang for your buck right now in Europe, and they have so much that, that unfortunately the tourism ministry hasn't done a very good job of, mm -hmm. of really marketing it well. But Romania is probably, of, and I've been all over Europe, it's probably the most serendipitous, just spontaneous place to travel. Things, especially if you're in a car on your own, you, you come across all these strange and wonderful things, especially in the small villages. And then when you interact with these folks, they are very happy to just chit-chat with you and talk, and they'll bring you into their homes and, and feed you their homemade plum brandy and, and whatever they happen to have on the stove. There's always something cooking, and they send you off, and it's just they wanted to hang out with you for a while. That's it. Life, thanks for sharing with us a, a better understanding of uh, Dracula and of his home country, Romania, and thanks for your book, Backpacking with Dracula, and happy travels. Thank you for having me. You'll find a link to Life Pedersen's book and travel blog in this week's show details in the radio section of ricksteves.com. In a minute, we'll get a personally vetted guide to the finer things in London. And later, listeners tell us of the kindness they've encountered in their travels at 877-333-RICK. Hey, Dracula. Hey, Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> How may I help you? Imagine being rich and stylish in London, being able to not only afford, but to enjoy and appreciate and fit into London's finest scenes. If that's you, then James Sherwood's witty guidebook to London's most stylish and characteristic restaurants, hotels, specialty shops, and other elegant scenes is just right to help you spend your money in style. As a longtime fashion critic and style guru, James has compiled James Sherwood's Discriminating Guide to London. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves with personally vetted advice for enjoying what, in London, they call the upper crust. James, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. It's so much fun for um, us on the other side of the uh, Atlantic here to go over to London and uh, try to survive in a city that, as you call, uh, the most cosmopolitan city in the world, and uh, I figure the most expensive city in Europe and do it in a way where we're not just driven down into the chain, you know, restaurants and the and the lowest way to consume, but connect with the elegance of London. What is the concept for you of your book? What are you trying to help travelers do? I think there's a huge difference between elegance and expense. London is is swamped with um, foreign money now from from the Middle East, from Russia, from China, particularly. And it's changing the character of the city in a way. So there is a, a very rich scene at the top, top, top for the, the super rich. And the book is not really about them because they tend to spoil a venue, in my opinion. You know, if, if you spend more than 10 minutes in the company of the super rich, you really want to run, run a mile and, and find somewhere a little, little more discreet and a little more English. I, I mean, we have this delightful notion of the, the proper English gentleman. I mean, we're all crazy about Downton Abbey and it was such a beautiful scene. <laughs> Does that yes. survive in the 21st century? I mean, what is the perfect gentleman traditionally, and, and where is that today? I think the, the whole concept of, of Downton has, um, it certainly still exists in London. I mean, we have restaurants, certainly, hotels, certainly, and shops most definitely that go back one, two, three hundred years. Many who have the Queen's Royal Warrant or the previous King's Royal Warrant. So 
these venues, they tend to gather around St. James's Palace and Buckingham Palace. So we're talking about St. James's and Mayfair uh, yeah. and Piccadilly. So it's the traditional fashionable West End. And I'm very pleased to say that we still have the Ritz, we still have the Savoy. On St. James's Street, we still have Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is one of the oldest vintners, if not the oldest vintner mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, I took a walk down uh, German Street. I think that's in that area. Yes. And, you know, you see people that, that make shirts and, they, and they've got all these fancy hats for the races yes. and hats for this and hats for that. Take us on a walk down uh, a place like Germain Street. What might we see and, and how does that sort of warm your spirit as far as this elegance from the, the good old days surviving in our modern world? I think German Street to me is one of the most exciting and one of the most romantic streets in London in a way. If you're walking from St. James's Street, you'll come across Turnbull and Asser, the royal shirt maker to Prince Charles on the right, that was founded in 1885. And it's essentially still making what it made in 1885, bespoke shirts and bow ties, gentlemen's requisites, you call it, so everything but the suit. Let's talk about gentlemen's requisites because we look yes. at the windows and we see sock garters and starched oh, yes, wing collars and stiff yes, bib fronted evening shirts. Uh, take us through the, the wardrobe there. I suppose it's wonderful that that still exists because there is still a market for it. For example, Royal Ascot Week and in the Royal Enclosure you are expected to wear morning tails, which you know gentlemen would have been wearing in the late 19th century. It hasn't changed at all, including the stiff stud collars. They're really for the the grown-ups, I suppose. Um, you don't see many of the younger men wearing them now. It's, it's probably too much of a faff. But German Street still maintains a standard, I think, that has existed for an awful long time. And, and also that area of London was known as a bachelor quarter from the era of Charles II. So we're going back to 1666, the Great Fire, hmm. when everything moved, the mercantile class moved from the city into the West End. And that was really the birth of luxury in the West End. So it's not unusual to find a shop that's been going father to son since the 19th century, but you're saying the tenor of that neighborhood goes back even four centuries. Absolutely, it does. It can go even further. I wrote a book called Royal St. James's, which was called Five Centuries of Royal Royal Style, mm-hmm. and it went back to St. James's Palace, which was built by Henry VIII for Anne Boleyn in 1530-31. Mm-hmm. Um, she lost her head before she moved in, unfortunately. <laughs> back on this, uh, it could be a number of streets, and you talk about the exceptional streets in your book. You have a delightful yes. part of your book yes. uh, with uh, Savile Row and Lamb's Conduit Street. And, oh, Lamb's Conduit Street, yes. And, and Burlington Arcade. I love the by the way, let's talk about arcades, because that takes me back to a day long before shopping malls. Well, I believe Burlington Arcade was the first covered shopping arcade. It was built in, I, I think it was 1819, and it was the Earl of Burlington lived next door in Burlington House, and mm-hmm. the peasants used to throw their oyster shells over his uh, wall, <laughs> and he didn't like it, so he and the Countess decided to build a covered shopping street, and this is Burlington Arcade. It still exists today and still is beautiful. So if we find ourselves on one of these exceptional streets that you write about, You might find a a shop that that features just hats. And you step into this shop, and if the proprietor has the moment to explain things to you, there's a hat for every occasion. What hats might somebody uh, need if they're going to be proper in London? Well, you'd tend to only wear a straw boater at Henley, the Henley Royal Regatta. It it looks quite eccentric and costumey to wear such a thing anywhere else. A top hat, a silk top hat for Royal Ascot, black silk top hat is appropriate. But the Panama hats really, I think, are for the modern gentleman, especially the gentleman who travels, you know, all the continents and, and all the climates. I mean, that's, that's possibly the most important. But mm-hmm. um, for the young, you see the trilbies and the flat caps. You know, you mentioned uh, 
with a little bit of concern, the younger generation, maybe they're not doing this or maybe they're not doing that. Is it just time for them to to sow their oats and, and get the craziness out of their system and settle down and become proper upper-crust English gentlemen? Or do you think there is a, an actual generational change that's going to rewire the whole upper-end situation? What I think is amusing, that, that it's probably my generation, and I'm in my 40s now, who rejected a lot of the formal dress and the Savile Row suit. And it's those chaps that you see wearing jeans and high-top trainers and T-shirts and probably dressing like children's television presenters when they shouldn't do. And you find the young generation react against their parents. They probably want to dress like their grandparents, in which case, you know, we should have a, a wonderful time for young men wanting to dress like English gentlemen again. And as you said, Downton Abbey's had a huge effect. James Sherwood's Discriminating Guide to London is a fun read, even if you're not planning a trip to Britain anytime soon. It's like having a confidant who knows the story behind nearly every well-appointed shop window in the city. James also writes a diary he calls Letters from Bloomsbury Square at james-sherwood.com. He's our guide to the elegance of London right now on Travel with Rick Steves. James, I, I referred earlier to the upper crust. Do you, do you know the yes. derivation of that, that phrase? Of the upper crust? I don't, I'm afraid. You'll, you'll have to enlighten me. So this is a little tour guide thing, but uh, there was something about in, in the Middle Ages when they were cooking up something, the uh, mm-hmm. elegant people always got the upper crust and then the peasants got what was on the bottom of the pan. Yes, the, the plus a change, I suppose. But today, the theme of your book is you don't need to be filthy rich to connect with this often parallel world. If you think about enjoying the Ritz but being able to afford it, what is your advice? There must be some ways where you can do something other than look through the window at this upper crust of London. Well, there certainly is. My tip for the Ritz is not to go to tea because it's become quite a tourist attraction and the Ritz is now serving tea from 11 a.m. to about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the evening, which mm-hmm. is ludicrous, really, considering tea is really between 3 and 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're dressed correctly, I would walk straight through the hotel and out onto the terrace, which looks out onto Green Park. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows that you can actually sit on the terrace on a very nice day and order a Pims or a gin and tonic and happily sit there. And it won't cost you an awful lot of money and you're probably one of the most exclusive gardens in London. You know, you can do that anywhere in your travels. And um, that's one thing I found is you just dress up the best you can, walk straight into the place like you own it, and sit down at the bar or go into the terrace in the back. I was just in Venice, and I and I stepped out on oh, the on the on the favorite. on the backyard of a of a fancy hotel that I would never afford to stay in. But I could sit there and have a drink and enjoy the best view in the city, as if I'm waiting for George Clooney's wedding. <laughs> and I think you're very welcome as well when you do that, because most people are terrified of just walking through the door at a hotel like the Ritz or Claridge's mm-hmm. or the Savoy. So I suppose you get points for even um, having the guts to walk yes, into these hotels. That's for sure. And there are also restaurants that seem out of reach that actually have lunch specials and pre-theater specials that actually are quite accessible. You certainly do your homework online bef- before you, you mm-hmm. risk it in a way. But if you went to Helen Darroze or the Connaught, the Connaught's one of the most beautiful old hotels on Carlos Place, just off Mount Street in Mayfair. And a set lunch will be, for two or three courses, will be 20 or 30 pounds, which is absolutely miraculous. It's usually the wine that gets you in London. You're going to spend 15 pounds in a forgettable, dingy uh, strip mall, and you could spend 20 pounds and have a a two-course lunch or a pre-theater dinner at the the Criterion. And it's such a different story now that people don't tend to eat the way that they used to in the Edwardian era. So it's not seven or nine courses. I'm not a great fan of... um, 
you know, the tasting menus particularly because it's rather too much. You mm -hmm. know, I'd much rather have one course with one glass of wine that's mm -hmm. absolutely exquisite mm -hmm. rather than sitting in a pret-a-manger amongst the, the hordes and uh, having a miserable time. <laughs> yes, I, absolutely. And there are some of these spaces that are so elegant, at the same time so accessible. And every tourist goes to Piccadilly Circus and you have all that riffraff out there in the square. Mm -hmm. And you step into the Criterion. Describe what it's like. I love the way you describe the Criterion in your book. It looks like a Byzantine church in mm -hmm. Ravenna. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And apparently it was, it was covered up for most of the 70s and 80s, and it became a Boots the Chemist. So it wasn't until a new owner came in and, and pulled down various sort of false walls, and they found these Byzantine <laughs> mosaics. Mm. And it really is, it's Art Nouveau to me. It's sort of very high Art Nouveau. And if you like Gustav Klimt, the painter, you've got the picture, really. It looks like you're dining in a Gustav Klimt. It's exquisite. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Sherwood, and, and James's book is The Discriminating Guide to London. James's website is james-sherwood.com, and we're talking about the perfect gentleman or gentlewoman in London. You mentioned in your book, James, that London is the world's most cosmopolitan city. How is London special and different that way when you think of the, the great cities around the world? I suppose that's quite a boast, isn't it, mm, to say it's the most bit. cosmopolitan city in the world. It, it was intended to be ever so slightly controversial. I suppose <laughs> what I mean is that it was cosmopolitan before any other city in the world. It was developed before any other important city today oh, yeah. in the world, probably with the exception of Beijing. And, and has held, I think, that attraction with the global, not just the elite, I don't think everybody comes to London if they can. Possibly everybody wants to see London once in their lives. You were talking about things changing. There is clearly a nouveau riche, and there's a lot of uh, Gulf oil magnets and so on, and half of London mm -hmm. seems to be owned by people who used to be part of the, the empire, and, and now they've sort of come home to buy up the capital. How do you see things changing in London? I suppose it's complimentary that the Sultan of Oman or, or Qatar wants to, to invest in London. That's, that's a compliment in itself, but at the same token, it is slightly um, spoiling certain areas. For example, Knightsbridge used to be very old England, I suppose. Mm -hmm. it, it was Mary Poppins to me when you walk around Eaton Square and Eaton Place. It, it used to be very charming. Now it's empty because these properties are being bought up by um, international investors who actually don't live there. They're probably there one week of the year. And the rest of the year, Knightsbridge belongs to the nannies and the cleaners. Um, no disrespect to nannies and cleaners either. Mm -hmm. Good for them. I would love to have one of those houses or look after yeah, right. it. But um, it's extraordinary how particular areas are being colonized now by particular nationalities. And um, Knightsbridge possibly has suffered the most. You know, you mentioned uh, you list the, the restaurants in different groupings. I love the way you, yes. you talk about What are a couple of your, your, your groupings? Well, my favorite is where to eat with amorous intent. So if you're intending to, um, to romance a lady or a gentleman, this is where you would take them. Um, for example, there's a restaurant in Soho called Andrew Edmonds that is, is made for seduction. It's candlelit at night. It's a Georgian house, you know, an 18th century house. The staff are incredibly discreet. It's almost like the Second Wives Club. You always see the people scouting for new husbands you know, in Andrew what, Edmonds. It's so funny because there must be thousands of restaurants in London, and I list a handful of them in my guidebook. And for years, I've listed Andrew Edmonds in my guidebook. Oh. But it's the only <laughs> restaurant I've ever encountered, James, where I'm at odds with the restaurateur. He doesn't want to be in the book. And he, he's so, like you said, it's discreet. 
And I, I write it up in a way where it's just, this is really a very, very discreet place, and it's just a special little corner of, of London. Yes. And, and those are rare. I, I would agree. Andrew lives, well, he, he actually doesn't live upstairs, but he has a private club called the Academy Upstairs, and that's his spiritual home. He doesn't have as, as much to do with the restaurant now. I mean, for my book, I think it was Gordon's Wine Bar at the bottom of Villiers Street, which is just sort of touching Strand and Covent Garden. And I, they had no interest in talking to me about their business, but that didn't matter because I, I wasn't really talking to the proprietors of, of these places because I wasn't after a freebie. Right. Do you list Everything, Gordon's? the restaurants, the hotels. Gordon's I didn't in the end no, because it's too claustrophobic. It's very it's claustrophobic. Like, you, you couldn't go yeah. in there dressed up. You, I mean, you're, you're lucky you, to you, find a little corner of couldn't. a table. But that's like sipping wine with Charles Dickens in, in, a, in somebody's amazing cellar. I mean, it's... Yes, it's very Bill Sykes and Nancy. Um, That's Gordon's. better, Bill Sykes, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not, and when you used to be able to smoke indoors, it was absolutely unbearable. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of yeah. your face for a start. Gordon's Wine Bar, that's one of the most atmospheric cellars for wine tasting, and they really are good with their wine. And, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, Andrew Edmonds, where to eat with amorous intent. Now, a, <laughs> a, a dying fashion, I think, is the Sunday roast, and you talked about Simpsons on the Strand. I used to love that for a Sunday roast. Talk just a bit about Simpsons and the Sunday Roast. Well, Simpsons belongs to the Savoy. It was opened by Richard Doyley Cart of, of opera fame, of Gilbert and Sullivan opera fame. It, it was also the home of chess, of all things. So the, there's a carving trolley ha had its birth, really, at Simpsons because it was on casters. It was quiet, so it didn't disturb ah. the chess players. And you still have booths to one side of the, of the main dining room, which were for playing chess. That was the point. Now it's more tourists than MPs. You know, mm -hmm. it used to be a lot of members of the House of Lords. It was very old, very old-fashioned. It still is. It's got a slight whiff of cabbage about it now. And, um, <laughs> That's I, such I think a good it, description. You're right. It needs some, some love. And I do think that, you know, these sort of heritage restaurants can't sit still and rest on their laurels. No. I think they, especially if they want to attract the Londoners again, I think... You know, it's unacceptable, actually, to smell of cabbage and not have air conditioning. What's really interesting about this discussion is these heritage places do survive. They survive, in some cases, with the help of tourism, and that's just reality. And they're, they're surprisingly affordable, really. And knowing a little bit about the context and the history and the heritage of these places helps the thoughtful tourist go in there and actually resurrect some of that old-world magic. And that's what's great about your book, is to be able to read these descriptions before going into one of these places, and then maybe you can better appreciate what they have to offer. Yes, I, I hope that's true. I mean, I, I still love Rules very much in Covent Garden, which is the oldest restaurant in London. It's 1798. Mm -hmm. I think George III was on the throne when it, mm -hmm. <laughs> when it first opened. <laughs> and it was, you know, well, Dickens, Edward VII, when he was Prince of Wales, used to entertain mistresses, uh, Mrs. Langtree, an actress upstairs and I believe there's still a room named after mm -hmm. the seventh that's now the the cocktail bar, the secret cocktail bar upstairs. Rules does to me feel as though it's still operating a sort of Edwardian level of service. Is it a value for the food, would you say? Yes, I, I, I think Rules is is great value because and the menus are terrific. They have their their own estate as well, so mm -hmm. they're shooting their own venison and pheasants and so nice. all of the game is their own from their own estates. And I think that's that's really saying something. They're upholding the standards, I suppose, that they upheld back in 1798. Well, we've got the same taste as uh, apparently the writers of Downton Abbey because the Criterion and Rules both had their little cameos in, in that oh, series, did. didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> yes, they did. 
James Sherwood, Discriminating Guide to London. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll get a quick look at the Diwali Festival of Lights in India after we check in with listeners next at 877-333-RIC. Tell us about the kindness you've encountered in your overseas travels and the strangers you met who brightened your way. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Some of the best souvenirs from our travels are the encounters we have with people in other countries. You can come back home with some memorable tales, especially when you have to rely on the kindness of strangers and when you have to overcome the language barrier. Tell us about the kindness you've found in your travels. Our number is 877-333-7425. George is on the phone from Shaker Heights in Ohio. George, thanks for your call. Yes, hi there, Rick. Yeah, have you um, encountered some unreasonable friendliness on the road? Well, some amazing friendliness. When my wife and I traveled to Greece to go to a family wedding, her brother was marrying into a family who was originally from the island of Idra, which is near Athens. Uh, My wife and I then flew to Crete and spent a couple days in the northwestern city of Hanya, and then we decided to drive down to the south coast. So we left Hanya very early and couldn't find anywhere for breakfast. And so we started driving south, and it involves driving over these ten or 11,000-foot mountains, the White Mountains. On the trip up the mountainside, we uh, saw a woman opening up a little caverna or cafeneo and putting out chairs and tables by the roadside. So we stopped, and we were able to order a, uh, a very modest breakfast because Greeks are not big on breakfast, but we had a breakfast of toast and honey and coffee and tea for my wife. And then we went in to pay the woman behind the counter in the bar area. And she wrote out the amount, and it was not very much money. And so I put the money on the counter, and then I went to um, add a tip to that, and she refused that. But then she held one finger up in the air, and she reached underneath the counter and pulled out this bowl of beautiful, green, fresh figs. And she sort of demonstrated how to open them up and eat them and so on. So we spoke very, very little Greek, and I don't think she spoke any English, but we were just enjoying this. And then she reached underneath the counter and pulled out a tall bottle of Rocky, which is Greek white lightning. Kind of like grappa, if you've ever had grappa. Firewater. It is like firewater. And this is breakfast. And this is is maybe 9.30 in the morning. (laughs) Good morning. Yep. So then she put out three small shot glasses and poured them. And we were told by um, our new Greek family on Idra that it was supposed to be a sin to refuse a drink in Greece. Oh, yeah. So we sipped on the Rocky and we continued to eat the figs, and and we were finished with one round of the Rocky, and she poured out a second rock. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we continued, but I was thinking, you know, where is this going? Because it it was the most pleasant way that that we could be spending the morning, but uh, of course we were a little concerned about driving over that mountain through the passes. and, And so when she went to pour out the third round, I just, you know, waved my hands or maybe covered the glasses up. And she had the most extraordinary expression on her face. She just, she looked crestfallen. And so the door to the taverna was open, and you could see the mountains 
through the door. And so I pointed towards the mountains, and I made that gesture of two hands on a driving wheel Mm -hmm. and pointed upwards. And the most delightful part, I think, is that uh, my grandmother, who had come from Slovakia, had a way of laughing with her whole body. Mm-hmm. And this woman started rocking back and forth and laughing, and we were laughing, and then she came out from behind the counter and we kissed and hugged, and, and then my wife and I uh, got into the rebel car and we continued our trip. And for the rest of your life, you'll have beautiful memories of that road trip across the island of Crete. Yes, and that wonderful oh. that wonderful woman who was just so kind to us. I love it. And you wouldn't have had that had you not ventured away from your hotel for breakfast and pulled off in a little town where they don't see a lot of tourists. That's right. All right. George, thanks. That's a great story. I'm going to go to Crete and hope to have the same thing. Free figs and shots of Rocky for breakfast. <laughs> That's right. Thanks so much, Rick. All right. Happy travels. We're sharing uh, memories of the kindness of strangers far away from home. And Mary's calling from Seville in New York. Mary, thanks for your call. Hi. We did Sicily about, oh, two years ago. And we went with the thought that it would be very easy. Well, we got promptly lost many times. But the most memorable time we got lost in Sicily, we were in a town for about two hours trying to get out. And just kept going in circles. Little old men on, on benches kept waving to us, you know, like, you know, we were part of a parade. <laughs> we pulled up to a little cafe and went in to see if we could get directions to get out of this very small town. And the man said he didn't speak English well, but his friend was coming in for espresso, and he spoke English very well. Man comes in. Did he speak English? He learned it from the Beatles. Oh, my goodness. Takes down a guitar from the wall. <laughs> He's playing Michelle. He's playing Blackbird. Then he says, but what did you want? We said, well, we wanted to get out of town. The girlfriend is tapping her toes, you know, mentioning that they're late. He says, well, I'm going to have an espresso, and then I will drive you out of town. So he has his espresso. He sings a couple of more Beatles songs. And he basically drove us out of town, which was we had missed one little turn. Mm. But, you know, his kindness and his, his generosity of his time and his songs, it was just so magnificent. It's, it's one of our best memories of Sicily. You, you Something we wouldn't have done, obviously, if we hadn't gotten lost. Right. But, you know, but being lost, it was such a, a wonderful serendipitous being lost and being found by such wonderful, wonderful experience to be let out of town where, you know, he said, mind the goats. <laughs> <laughs> if you're too good, you don't open the door for those special little serendipities. And driving through Sicily is, is quite an experience. I would recommend it to everyone because everyone wants to help you. I've had the same experience in Sicilian towns driving where, you know, there's these labyrinthine one-way roads in a village, and if you don't know the way out or the way in, you can go round and around, get to know the people on the bench laughing at you every time you circle by. It's really true. (laughs) I'm just trying to think of a Beatles song that would help you out of there. Maybe the long and winding road. Well, the long and winding road. (laughs) The long and winding road. All right. Or it was more like Penny Lane, actually. We were in the roundabouts quite a bit. Or maybe it was just help. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mary, thank you very much for sharing your your Beatles story from Sicily. Well, thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. 
Shelley's calling in from Yarmouth in Nova Scotia. Shelley, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call, actually. Yeah. I would like to talk about Franco, a man we met at the bottom of the Spanish Steps in Rome. And we were sitting there looking at our map, and this gentleman just kind of came up and said, is there something I can help you with? And his English was excellent, and but he had this beautiful bouquet of flowers, and it was really close to the supper hour. And we said, oh, you know, we're just trying to find our route to where we were heading to next. And, and he said, oh, he says, is your accent, it sounds kind of Canadian. And we said, yes, we're from Canada. And he said, oh, I have friends in London, Ontario. And, and so we started talking about his friends in London, Ontario. And, and the next thing we knew, 30 minutes had just disappeared in this amazing discussion about the things that he, he did and his work. And he was actually going for supper with these flowers to friends. And he said, that's okay. He said, I always come early, so I have lots of time. And I'm not like, hey, we just had this engaging discussion about the things that he liked about his hometown and things that, you know, he thought that we should kind of take in if we had a chance. And we, he's, we talked about where we like to eat and the type of food. And he, and he said, he said, well, this place is kind of a little out of the way. He says, but this is my favorite spot. Hmm. So we said, wow, you know, and he took out a card and he wrote down this address and, and this name. And, and at the bottom he said, and put Franco's price on it because he would go every weekend. And, and so we went, Franco's, okay, Franco's you know, price, we should go. Huh? And yeah. so sure enough, off we go. And it's this amazing restaurant with this just totally cool vine-covered um, arbor, and we're sitting in amongst it, and it's just this amazing thing. And and anyway, back up because bef- as we were leaving him, we said, you know, thank you so much. He says, oh no worries at all. You know, we just said, when you drink tonight, drink to my health. So we said, okay, we definitely will. Here's so the we're sitting this, uh, there under this uh, amazing arbor, and we had this amazing meal at Franco's price, and we toasted to his health. And what we've continued to do to this day, uh, and that was probably seven years ago, is every time we raise a glass in no matter what country we're in, and even in our own home and in our kitchen and with friends, we always add and to Franco's health. <laughs> and so we just thought that that was a special way, and, and it really spoke to the, the friendliness of people along the way that we happened to come across. and and our way of saying, wishing them well and their health well as we continue on. Shelley, I love that story. And Thanks. You were, we like it, too. It's a beautiful story. And these are the magic little gems that you take home from a good trip, and they're really... Exactly. They're about people. And, it, you know, it just re- reappears mm-hmm. every time you have a glass of wine. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you know, at first I was a little nervous because when you're in a famous touristy place like the Spanish Steps in Rome, you do risk encountering people that are con artists that hang out to talk to tourists, and they're very charming. And you do have mm-hmm. to be a little bit careful, but I don't want people to be paranoid about that either because there's a lot of genuine Francos out and about. And like you said, Franco actually cuts a little extra time in his schedule so he can have those fun moments. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's really the Italian, the, the joy of living in, in Italy. They've got that concept of the piazza. It goes all the way back to ancient Roman times. And, and an Italian will go down to the piazza uh, with a bouquet of flowers, heading for dinner, intending to stay a while and talk to people and share and and catch up. And there's something very charming about that. And when we travel... It was very charming. You've got to factor that into your schedules. It's just so important to recognize that the real travelers, the, the good travelers, are doing more than lacing together a bunch of places that have turnstiles. And, and you've got to, mm-hmm. you got to meet Absolutely. Franco. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Franco's waiting my, for my all of us. My partner, my travel partner, and I just love being able to sit and people watch. And so we had just gotten up from yeah. sitting on the Spanish steps of watching other people continuing <laughs> on. We were probably there for, I don't know, about maybe 35, 40 minutes and just sitting and watching them. And in turn, we benefited from one of those people coming up and saying, you know, can I help you, right? Yeah. And then engaging in that very kind of basic human spirit of, of giving back to each other. You know, that's built into the in many cultures, but we're just talking Italy right now, and one thing mm-hmm. I've noticed, and I've kind of been uh, tuned into that just in the last year or two, some of the finest squares in these towns are filled with market stalls in the morning, and they're just kind of empty in the, in the afternoon, and early in the evening, the outdoor bars just open up their tables, and the uh, retired people and the lovers and the students and the, and the people walking their dog just come by, and they have their aperitivo time, and it's the spritz culture. And if you buy a drink, you'll find people are there to be social, and especially mm-hmm. a, tra- a traveler who wants to take time, drink the local drink, be out on the local square, and connect with local people, you can find your Franco, but you've got to take the initiative and, and open the door to that. They're not going to come into your hotel. You've got to go down to the piazza. Absolutely. And, and spend five bucks for a spritz and be part of the and scene. And I think you, you said it really nicely, too, in terms of, you know, sometimes there are people there who may want to take advantage of you because on a subsequent trip, we actually had that happen on those same steps. And... You don't want that to jade your experience of, of allowing yourself to be open to those truly genuine opportunities to connect with people. So important. So important. It's very important. All right, Shelley, thanks for uh, sharing your experience with the kindness of strangers, and I'll remember Franco, too. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. We're getting your stories of kindness you've encountered in your travels at 877-333-RICK or email us your story to radio at ricksteves.com you do that, you might be on with us on a future edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Thomas Cook is calling in from Cuyahoga Falls in Ohio. Hi, Thomas. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good. Uh, before we get into your story, Thomas, i got to ask you, are you like the Thomas Cook for travelers? No. <laughs> yeah, are you related, or what's the story? No, it's a complete coincidence. Although, uh, the first time I went to Amsterdam, I was sick and tired, and you walk out of the central station there, and the first thing you see is the giant Thomas Cook sign. Yeah, Thomas they didn't give Cook. me any money there, but... There's a limit to how far your your uh, coincidental name will go. Tell us a story, exactly. Thomas, about heroic kindness. Uh, well, my wife and I were traveling in uh, in England with her relatives, uh, visiting them, and they decided we should take the channel and go to Paris for a couple of days, so we did that. We parked on a street where we thought it was a good idea, and this uh, little old Frenchman is waving his arms at us kind of angrily, and he's he's right out of central casting. You know, he's got the little tweedy jacket on and a, a beret and a bit of a gin blossom on his nose. He's of a certain age. At first we thought he was angry, but it turns out we had just parked in the wrong place. And his concern was that our car was going to get uh, towed away. So this guy, he could have just walked away, but he he went out of his way to help us, and then he gave us directions to a place we could park and a place we could eat, and, oh, it's so wonderful to have you here, and the whole nine yards, which goes against all the terrible stereotypes of Frenchmen. Oh, yeah. But it's a story I've been able to tell a hundred times about. Well, you know, the first time I went to Paris, this is the experience I had with the sure. Frenchman. And originally you thought he was angry at you by his gestures? Yeah, he was gesturing and kind of shouting, and I didn't. I don't have any French, so I didn't know. I think but, a lot um, of times people think people are, are responding negatively to them, and it, it's actually a, just a quirk of the local, how they use their hands and so on. And Especially if you have that seed planted in your head. Yeah. You've been sort of taught, you know it's a stereotype, but you have that thought in the back of your head that, oh no, here comes this Frenchman sure. who's going to be rude to me because I'm an American. But it turns out... Part of the reason he stopped is he heard us speaking English. Yeah. And so he knew we didn't know. Yeah. 
but it, you know, it is a touristy area. Mm-hmm. And like you say, in the touristy areas, sometimes people aren't as kind. And a areas. lot of Americans, they're in, they're in Paris, and it's the middle of the summer, and anybody who can afford it will get out of there, and you got the poor Parisians who are stuck there in the summer with all the Americans coming in and butchering their language and putting ketchup on their meat and, <laughs> and coming into the metro with a, with a $50 bill and wanting to buy a ticket worth $1, and right. they don't have change, and, and there's no language, and it's just a, it's a bad scene, and uh, you can't judge French that way, that's for sure. Exactly so. All right. That's my story of the, the friendly little Frenchman who saved our car. That's a great story. Thomas from Ohio, thanks a lot. Real pleasure, Rick. Thank you. You bet. A few years ago on Travel with Rick Steves, the author of A River Runs Again told us about the environmental challenges people in India are addressing. While Mira Subramanian was raised in New Jersey, her father came from Chennai in India, and that's where Mira spent many extended vacations with her relatives ever since she was a toddler. Mira joins us now for a quick look at how people across India brighten up the shorter days that come with the approach of winter with the Hindu festival of lights known as Diwali. Mira, tell us about Diwali. The memories of, as a child, were just kind of amazing, where there's just firecrackers everywhere, kids are running loose, you know, it's fairly dangerous, (laughs) but you're allowed to do it, and it's just noisy and mayhem. What's with this firecrackers? Because I almost lost my eye with a bottle rocket in, in Christmas in Kerala, in India. I mean, there was, I've never <laughs> seen so many firecrackers. Yeah, they are, they are literally everywhere. It's just the more noise and more light you can make. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting because the tradition grew out of a much more quieter with a festival of lights. Candles. There's also these, just these beautiful oil candles, and I've done oh. that ritual too with a friend in Delhi who, who just, all these tiny little terracotta lamps that are just like an inch or so across, and you're putting in you're putting in oil and you're you're making little wicks out of cotton and dipping them in and trying to make them light. <laughs> Sometimes and, they go and this out. is fun for kids just to light and have fun with the oil lamps. But what's the religious uh, undergirding? Well, it's it's basically it's the renewal time of the year, and so so you would see people would put the lights out on all of their doorsteps and all of their fences that that line their homes. And what's interesting when you would walk down a street and see every house lit up with these beautiful oil lamps. It's so much more enticing than just Christmas lights that are just on. You know, they're either on or off, even if they're blinking. But the oil lamps just have this magical feel. But then you might pass a house that's totally dark and you learn that somebody died there during the year. So the, the house is in morning. Yeah, so there's this beautiful... So you don't light during Diwali if somebody in your house died. Right, right. You just don't celebrate. What kind of food would people enjoy during Diwali? More of more of everything. <laughs> Really and an lots of sweets, yeah. Lots of sweets. <laughs> and it's all across India. It's, it's a Hindu thing, all across. Yeah, all across. And is there gift giving? There's always, um, there's, a, there's a specific ritual about cleaning your body. It's really about purification going into this new stage. Mm. And so you wear a new outfit that you've never worn before, and mm. you wash your body. And in the morning, first thing, all those things happen in the, in the early morning with the actual religious rituals. And then, and then the mayhem begins. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at Minnesota Public Radio and the BBC in London for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. 
and Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.